Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 8. I told you last week, if you remember, that um, there has to come a time in your life as a Christian, if you're ever going to really do anything for God, that you have to start taking the Word of God seriously and start getting into it and studying it. And uh, we, we don't we don't push anybody to do that around here. We just teach the Bible, and, and it's a natural flow in, in, in your life if that's what you want. Uh, but uh, today we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get into uh, the meat of the Word of God. Last week I, I purposely gave you an introduction on this chapter so you would have a better uh, handle on it when we got into it this week because, as I told you, this without a doubt is, the, is the, probably the deepest passage anywhere in the Scriptures. And there won't be a lot of milk here. Yet there'll be some, some stuff that you can get out of it. And you know, and, and I'm not a, you know, I'm I'm a pretty uncomplicated guy. I uh, I'm not I, I'm not very smart in things, and I have to work hard at learning things. I think, if I remember correctly, I think I was the only kid in the sixth grade who had a driver's license. But uh, <laughs> I have to work at learning things, and I'm no different than you are. I wasn't gifted with some superior intelligence that, uh, you know, makes it easy for me. I, I've had, and, and that was a good thing for me, and I think it's a good thing for anybody because it forced me then to, <clears throat> the Bible didn't come easy for me. It forced me to look for alternatives and, and avenues of, of learning the Scripture that made it easier for me to grasp. And, and you know, for 25, 30 years of my life, you know, that's what I did. I tried to learn the Bible, but I had to put it in, understandable formats for me. And I'm just like you. And the great blessing in that is, is because you and I are much alike, you know, it, it helps, it helps you learn the Bible because I can use those same basic formats. And that is what I want to do today, even though this is a very complicated passage. You know, if you're, I'll tell you right now, if you're an inspirational kind of person, um, you probably ought to just go to your iPhone and get on an app here and play a game for the next 45 minutes or so. But the Bible says that strong meat belong to strong Christians. And that's what we're here to build, from our little kids growing up to our youth group to the adults to the older folks in our church. And uh, last week we, we had an introduction to, as I've already said, was probably the deepest passage in the Bible, Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. Yet it's one of the most profound places in all of the Bible on, on the deity of Christ simply who Christ was and where Christ came from. You know, and when you start to talk with people, invertedly, that's the question you're going to get. People wonder where God came from. They wonder where God, you know, it's hard for them to grasp eternity. And I'm not saying that this passage explains all that, but I'm telling you this, that this passage helps put it into a context for you. And you notice that last week, one of the things that we did by design, was we, def- we define some very important terms that you should know and understand now. We define what it means for Christ to be called the Son of God. We know now from, first, from John chapter 5, verse 18, that means that he was very God. We also now understand the term uh, begotten of God. And we saw John 1, 18 and Acts 13, 33 and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, that the begotten of Christ deals with his first coming of Christ. Nowhere back in eternity. We also saw that Christ was not a begotten God, but was very God himself. And I showed you the verses in 1 John 5, 6 and 7, and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. We now probably have a pretty good understanding of the term, the manifestation of God, because we talked about that and how that God came forth, Christ came forth out of the Godhead. And this is what Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 and 31 is, is talking about. It all centered around the seven mysteries given to the church. I don't know if you know this or not, but within the Bible, there's a natural system of sevens. Seven in the Bible <clears throat> is God's perfect number. He does everything by sevens. And <clears throat> it's no great mystery that, that when God wants to lay out the Bible, he does it through a system of sevens. The Bible talks about that there's seven things that a Christian should not be ignorant of. We went over them many, many times. But you know that when you look at those and understand those, those are the exact seven things that most Christians are ignorant of. You couldn't find most Christians that could lay out for you for the seven mysteries. We teach it around here all the time. Bible says that we're to be stewards of the mysteries of God. 
But then you go on with that, you'll find in the Bible there's seven judgments. You'll find in the Bible there's seven resurrections. You'll find in the Bible there's seven baptisms. And when you put all of it together, and you, it unfolds itself and lays itself out, this is how you learn uh, the Word of God. We also saw the manifestation of Christ to the world uh, and how it was many models for us as, uh, as Christians in a, in a perfect way. You know, in the Bible, there's many men and women who we can learn much from, um, from studying their lives and their relationships with God. I think of Isaiah, what he went through, and, and who doesn't love the story of Ruth and Boaz. You know, you have Mary, you have Martha, you have Abraham, Moses, what a tremendous study that he is. David, Jacob, Enoch, I mean, the list is endless. But all of them have one thing in common. We can learn some great things from them, and their lives are great to study, but they all, at the end of the day, were sinners. They all failed. They all were frail in their lives. They were weak, and they were as fallible as you and I are. So God gave me a perfect model. He wants me to learn from all of that and glean from all of their lives, but they're just like me. God gave me a a model who was tempted on all points like we are, yet without sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you study that perfect model, he's a perfect model for a perfect fellowship. Walking in the light, as the Bible says, is he in the light, having fellowship one with another. He's the perfect model of of the will in our lives. Uh, wanting God's will, the Father's will, over our own will. He's the perfect model for obedience in the Bible. Obedient as Christ was even unto death. He's the perfect model for worship in the Bible. And it lays out the real true concept of worship, that we understand that worship is not something that we do. There is no such thing as a worship service. You don't worship God with your tithes and your offerings like you hear so many people say today. Worship is a state of your attitude of heart. You don't do worship, you live in a state of worship. It's your relationship with Christ. These things are all things that are confusing today. We learn the perfect prayer life from Christ, the perfect walk with Christ, and how to have the perfect relationship with Christ. And yet, as I said last week, and been keying on it a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, Christ was my perfect model for evangelism penetrating cultures, reaching people, God becoming man. You know, Paul Harvey, he's dead now. I think he died in 2009, I think it was. But Paul Harvey was a great Christian. And Paul Harvey was a great guy to listen to. I don't know if you know this or not, but there were things that Paul Harvey said 15 years ago about our children and the school system and how it was going to fracture and how everything was going to happen when you took God and the Bible out of schools. It was Paul Harvey 15 years before it happened that said if you take the Bibles out of school, the guns will come into school. And he was a tremendous guy, great insight into some things. Uh, Many, many, many years ago, I heard him tell a story. I've never forgotten it. It was something that really made the point of penetrating a culture. He told the story of how a family was getting ready to go to church one, one Christmas morning. Uh, Christmas was on Sunday that morning. Mom was a Christian. The three or four kids were a Christian, but dad was not. Dad didn't believe in God. And so they were all getting ready to go to church and all getting ready to go out and, and, and go to church, and dad said he wasn't going to go. Didn't matter if it wasn't Christmas. He didn't want anything to do with that. He didn't believe anything about God. He wasn't going to go. So they all went to church, and Dad stayed there, you know, and he got him a cup of coffee, and he was sitting there at the kitchen table. Snow was coming down. It was very cold, and he was looking out that window out there, and he caught his attention that there was a little bird out there that had gotten a broken wing, and it couldn't fly. And it was just kind of all shivering up there in the, in, the, in the snow, and it was cold, and the frost was starting to form on it, and obviously the little bird was going to freeze to death. Well, for whatever reason, the dad got transfixed on this little bird. And he, he came to the point where he, he tried to, he wanted to help that little bird. And he tried to do everything that he could. He opened the window, but the bird would just flutter and just spin around and get farther away. He come up with the idea of maybe getting some breadcrumbs and he kind of threw out pieces of bread hoping that the bird would make its way where he could pick it up and bring it in and, and kind of keep it from freezing to death. But the bird just completely, just completely was afraid of him and, and just fluttering all over the place. But it couldn't fly because its wing was broke. 
He got so frustrated with this little bird. He wanted to help this bird so bad. He was racking his brain how to think how he could communicate to this little bird that he was not going to hurt him, that he was only going to help him. And he was thinking about it and racking his brain and, and, and he would tried everything he knew how to do. He turned the lights off so maybe the light was scaring him. And he tried the whole process again. That bird was just out there shivering and everybody would just flitter a little farther back every time. After about an hour of that and totally frustrated, he, he was consumed by this little bird. And he thought to himself, you know what? He said, I, I don't know how to reach this bird. He said, I don't know what I can do. I've tried everything and nothing. He's afraid. He doesn't understand. I'm trying to help him. And he said, you know what? The only way I could ever really reach that bird was for me to become a bird. And at that exact moment, the church bells rang. And he thought of the fact that, that he was that little bird Amen. broken in life. And the only way that God could come down and, 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 and heal his brokenness was for God to become a man. And that's what God did. I remember that story like it was the, just like I heard it yesterday. It has to be 35 years ago. I, I heard it when I was still living in Ohio years and years and years ago. When we get saved, we are begotten of God. We now, we talked about this last week, we now become the visible appearance of the invisible God. Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead that ye be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Bible says that now that I'm saved, I'm an, ambas I'm an ambassador. You know, an ambassador doesn't have any ties to the country he's in. He can't vote. He has diplomatic immunity to many things. He is really, uh, he's sent from another country into a foreign country to represent that country. And the day you and I got saved, that's exactly what happened with our life. Bible talks about the seven things, one of the greatest studies. We call it discipleship two. It's the next level you can go to after discipleship one. The seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. One of them is that you become now an ambassador for Christ. The Bible says that now my passport, my citizenship in the book of Ephesians chapter two is up in heaven. Bible says that now that I'm saved, I'm seated in heavenly places in Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3 that now my affections are set on things above. Matthew 22 verse 37 says that my attitude about things down here has changed. And Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says that my conversation is now a heavenly one. Because I'm the ambassador. You're the ambassador. I love this verse here in 2 Corinthians 5. 20, where he says, now then we as we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by prayer, we pray you in Christ's stead. You see, it's you and me now instead of Christ. You and I now are fulfilling what Christ started, but God never intended for him to finish it because he intended for you and me to get saved, be begotten of God, become an ambassador for Christ, and then do the work of God in Christ's stead. Now today, with what we've learned last week, we now are in a better position to understand this great passage. And it, we're going to read it again here. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. It says, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of His way, before His works of old. I was set up from everlasting from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, then he prepared the heavens. I was there when he set a compass upon the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment. Then he appointed the foundations of the earth. Then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. 
rejoicing in the habitable part of, the, of his earth, and his delights were with the sons of men. Now, Father, help us today. This is a very complicated and deep passage, Father, but you've never given us anything in this book that, that a, a common man who just loved you and believed the Word of God could not figure and find out because that's the way you wrote it. You wrote it, Father, to us who just simply trust you by faith, who believe that every word in this Bible is the Word from God, that we, we hold it sacred in our lives, in our church, in our teachings, in all that we do. We teach our young people uh, its infallible truths and, and build our homes and our families on it. We build everything in our life as Christians around this book because this is the only thing that will do and last forever. So we ask you today, Father, to Holy Spirit of God, uh, illuminate these things for us. Help us to, to grow and, and through this and help these Christians today, Father, that want to learn your word and want to know your word. Help them to uh, come away today with some great truths that will help them, not only today, but 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. They'll continue to add to what we learned today. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And the sake we ask it, amen. amen. Now, I'm going to lay this out section by section. This is the way I did it 30-some years ago. As I told you earlier, I'm not the smartest light bulb or the brightest light bulb in the box. And I had to, I had to find a way to make that Bible understandable to me. I worked hard at it. I worked long at it. And, and in many cases, I succeeded at it. And uh, I, I want to show you just by taking the things that I did some 30, 35 years ago, and I want to show you how I learned it and put them in my Bible. And you could almost go down my Bible in Proverbs 8 along here, and, and you'd have it just as I'm giving it to you here. Uh, but what you have here, and I want you to grasp this, is what you have in this passage is a person of Christ recorded for you and for me through the timeline of the Bible. That's the first thing I want you to get down. And if, if you, in your Bible at some point, I don't know that I'd put it in now where you're trying to do it, put it under a note, but this is, wants to be the fundamental theme of this chapter. This is, this, what you have here is the person of Christ recorded for you through a timeline of the Bible. And you'll want to get these things down as we go through them, and, and then you'll have it. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, you won't understand everything I'm saying today. I'll be very honest with you. I don't understand everything I'm saying today. But you want to get it in your Bible because, as I said, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you'll see how this stuff starts to pull together and you'll have a better, better, better understanding as you grow of what God is doing here. Now, let's look at verse 22 and 23. And I'm going to take these in sectional verses and explain each one. So you can put it in your notes now and then get it in your Bible along there if you have a wide margin Bible a little bit later on. Here's what he said. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting from the beginning or ever the earth was. Now in your Bible, it says in Genesis chapter 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. So these two verses here now, we're going to get a context for it, will fit into that time period at the beginning. And verse 22 says the beginning of his way. Now, I need to just take a minute here, and I don't want to belabor this point too much because we could spend hours on this, but I want to explain to you the difference between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 2. And if you've been around here for any length of time, or you're any kind of Bible student, you'll, you'll be able to identify, but I'm going to make it real simple. It's one of the most controversial places in the Bible. Now, the standard teaching is this. And you get this in seminaries. I guarantee you every Baptist preacher, almost without exception, in Kansas City, if not around the country, would, would teach it this way, and it's wrong. They'll teach you that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And then verse 2 says, And the earth was formed without void and dark upon the face of the deep. They'll teach that as all one event moving through time. And uh, they'll teach that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and then what follows is just an order of events happening as God creates it. Well, we don't have time to go into all that today, but that's simply not true. The Bible, uh, the Bible teaches that, uh, that there, is a, uh, there, there is a vast period of time between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 2. Now, the Bible doesn't tell you what that time period is. There's no indication to it. Well, I don't want to say that. It doesn't give you clearly what it is. But if you know your Bible and believe your Bible, you know that that's simply not true. Uh, it, uh, in the theological circles, this is called the gap theory. 
that there's a gap of time between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It's not a gap theory. It's a gap fact. I mean, if you know your Bible. That time period between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 could be 100 million years. It could be 20 minutes. The time element is not given. Uh, No time frame is accurate that you can really uh, doctrinally put into that. But I I will tell you the events that take place in that time period. I'd say that first of all, that this is the start of God's plan, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. During this time, as you're going to see, Christ comes forth. We know that during this period of time that the angels are created and Lucifer is also created. They're created beings. Christ gets his position over the heavenly host. Lucifer gets his position over the kingdom of heaven and everything on the earth. We all know this from, uh, we know now that he, Lucifer was not satisfied with that. And then he tries to lead a revolt. And this revolt is laid out for you in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. Bible says he takes a third of the angels with him. And they would try to overthrow God because, as we saw last week, the devil wants to be God. Now, those are the events that take place in that time period. But I'm not even going to suggest to you a time element here. I don't have a clue of how, how long that time period could be between those two verses. But I am telling you that what we're about to look at here is takes place during that period of time. So you want to be able to put that in a context. Now look at verse 24, 25, and 26. When there were no depths, that's the deep, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. Well, he had not yet made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. So now we have where we talked about it last week, this is a time period before Genesis 1-2, in Genesis 1-1, approximately somewhere in here. And now, because he says here there's no deeps. The deep shows up a little bit later on in chapter 1. There's no mountains. There's nothing done. And yet he says, I was brought forth. I was brought forth uh, to, the, to be the express person of God's image. This is God moving, as we said last week, out of himself to take on a visible image. This is the very beginning of God's plan that God knows is going to go to two different peoples. We saw it last week in John chapter 17, verse 8, where he says, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee. This is the time period, Genesis chapter 1-1, around that period of time. And he's now, God's plan is in effect. Now he's beginning in the very, very beginning of it. Christ is manifesting himself. He's coming out of the Godhead to be the visible appearance of the invisible God. In that little story of Paul Harvey, he's now becoming that visible thing that can identify with the visible man and his need. This is what he's doing. We know that throughout the Old Testament, God deals with the nation of Israel. And as I told you last week, this is where God manifests himself to them. He manifests himself as the angel of the Lord or the captain of the Lord's host. He shows up from time to time. This is who Moses saw on the Mount of God when he said, who can see the face of God and die? Well, you can't see the face of God, the Father, but he saw the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's who he saw. That's all how that thing worked. When we get into the New Testament, then God, Christ has to reveal himself uh, uh, to the church, you and for me. And I think I want you to see again here that the Bible makes it clear that he was brought forth. Nowhere in the history of this time period does the Bible ever say he was begotten. We know now from last week that he was begotten when he came into the world through Mary. Now, all of this, verses 22 through 26, will take place around, as I said, Genesis chapter 1-1, but before Genesis chapter 1-2. So it's all taking place so far in that time period based on the context of what we have. 
that great unknown time period in the Bible. But you're going to remember now, if you went through our dispensations and you went through our seven pillars, you now know that, that uh, there's a vast period of unknown time at the beginning of your Bible, and there's a vast period of time at the end of your Bible. We now have laid that out. So it's very consistent, even though we don't exactly know what the time element may be. We learned that in our classes on dispensations. Now look at verses 27, 28, and 29. Now now we're going to get into some little bit of solid ground here. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the deep. When he established the clouds above. When he strengthened the fountains of the deep. When he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment when he appointed the foundations of the earth. Now we've come to a place where in these verses we can get a little bit of solid ground for they refer to the first chapter of Genesis after Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. Everything I've given you up to this point has been Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 or around that time period. Now we're clearly moved into Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and beyond. He says in verse 27, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. I want you to notice that he says prepared, not created. This is the restructuring of everything after the original creation in in verse 1. Notice he says in verse 3, let there be light. This will be a reference to the first two days of God's six days of reconstruction of the heavens of the earth. Notice he says there in verse 27, set a compass upon the face of the deep. Now, a lot of people, when they read things like that, they just think that God is speaking in a figurative way, kind of like in a flowery way, kind of like in a, in a way that you know, gives um, some kind of, of, of character along with what he's saying that God really didn't set a compass on it. But, you know, he did. Because the Bible tells us, when, and, and this is why I keep telling you, almost everything in the Bible you read is literal, and when it's not literal, he usually tells you it's not literal. And when he says he set a compass upon the face of the deep, he did. Because every compass on this planet points to where heaven is. Because the Bible says in Psalm 75, 6 and Job 26, 7, that heaven is north. And when he set the compass on that deep, he set that compass to the north, and that's where the Lord is, on the sides of the north, Psalms uh, talks about. The Bible says he stretches out the north over the empty place in Job 26. The Bible says in Psalm 75 that promotion cometh from the south and the east and the west, but from the Lord. He put himself in that place. Now, if I was getting in a rocket ship, you couldn't do this, but in a practical sense, if I got in a rocket ship someplace and I wanted to get home to heaven, <clears throat> of course, you couldn't do this, but I'm just saying theoretically, I, I'd head north. Wouldn't head south, head north. <clears throat> Wouldn't head west, you get to California. Don't want to go there. You want to head north because heaven is north in the Bible. And, of course, we talk about the glory, the glory of the Lord and all those things, and yet when you see a little glimpse of that, what do they call it? The northern what? Lights. It's north. Everything is north when it comes to God. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but it fits right along with the Bible. You know there's two norths. There's a true north and there's a magnetic north. Magnetic north is not true north. Magnetic north is just a couple degrees off of true north. Do you know in going to heaven and trusting the Lord as your own personal Savior and in religion today, you know there's a true north and there's a magnetic north? Amen. There's a way that you can say you're saved, but you're just a couple degrees off. Somebody says, well, I joined a church, I'm saved. That's magnetic north. Somebody says, well, I've been baptized, I'm saved. No, you're two degrees off. Somebody says, well, you know what, I do good works and I do all this and all that and I give money to the church, I'm going to heaven. No, you're about three degrees off on that one. You see, just as there is a way that seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof are the ways of death, the Bible says, Amen. there's a true north and there's a magnetic north. There's a north that looks good, but it isn't going to get you there. If you want the right north, you've got to get true north. And that's up over Alpha Draconis heading north Amen. in the solar system. So he said a compass. And when he says a compass, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if God said, hey, Michael, throw me a compass. And I don't know what he did. 
but it's north. And you want to find that place? If Theoretically, if you could, you'd head north, and you'd guide on the north. Now, look at verse 28. When he established the clouds above, when he strengthens the fountains of the deep. Now, this is tremendously deep stuff here. I'm not going to kid you. But now I want you to notice that you have a deep here. So this is after Genesis 1-2. This will be the dividing of the waters of the great deep, which you find in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8. Now look there. It says he established the clouds above. Now, you get most commentators on this, and most, most commentaries you'll read, and most guys read They won't have a clue what they're reading. They're going to think that that means the puffy white Clouds, you know, the nimbus clouds and the, all the clouds that you see up there and the curious clouds and all that. That's not talking about those kind of clouds. He hasn't even made the earth yet. <clears throat> the clouds he's talking about here are not up in the sky as we know them. But they're a reference to something up there in God's second heaven <clears throat> talked about throughout the book of Job and the book of Psalms. Job 37 verse 14 says, Hearken unto this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Dost thou not know when God disposed them, he caused the light of his cloud to shine? Dost thou know the balance of the clouds, the wondrous works of him, which perfect in knowledge? Bible says in Psalm 68:34 that God's strength is in the clouds. Psalms 104 verse 4 says that the clouds are his chariots. Those clouds are something up there someplace else than what you see out there in your sky today. Now, did you ever see them? And I, I, I'm not saying this is it, but I'm just telling you. You ever see, ever been out in a, I remember one time I used to take those pictures. We used to get out way out in western Kansas a couple of times. And I mean, the skies are so dark, you can see stars down to the sixth, seventh magnitude. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, there's just stars everywhere. And it's pitch black night, there's no moon. And I'm down there, and we're doing a bunch of stuff, and I look over on the horizon, and I start seeing a big cloud bank come rolling in. And I'm thinking to myself, ah, oh, that's going to mess everything up. And so I said, well, guys, we better, you better, get, we better hurry up here. It looks like we got clouds rolling in. And one of the guys said, clouds? Where's clouds? And I said, look over there. And he said, that's not clouds. That's the Milky Way. The Milky Way was so bright and so predominant in that dark night sky with the clear skies that it looked like a rolling bank of clouds. Those clouds he's talking about are not out there in the sky you see today. It's something up there that's likened to God's chariot that his strength is in. Now, I'll tell you, that's what you got here. Look at verse 28. When he stretched, when, 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 he, when, his, when he strengtheneth the fountains of the deep. Now, Bible says in Psalms 36, 6, that God's judgments are a great deep. See how this starts all connected together? The Bible says in Genesis 8, 2, when God brought the flood on Noah's day, that it was these fountains that broke up in the deep and brought the water. Now, that was God's judgment on this earth through God's strength. So, in Psalms 36, God's judgments are a great deep. See how it all works together? Those things mean something in the Bible. I'm not telling you I know what they all mean, but I'm telling you what they don't mean. I'm telling you that's something up there that in God's second heaven. Look at verse 29. When he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commands. When he appointed the foundation of the earth. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all of the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Now, this is where, maybe don't do that. This is where these things drive me crazy. How and why did he, he's not figurative here. If there's storehouses up there where that water's in, I guarantee you there's storehouses up there. Now, I'm not saying it looked like a Safeway warehouse. I don't know what they look like. But he's got that water stored up there, and in his mind it's a storehouse, and it's in store for something. Now, I know what it's in store for, because if you look at the end of that chart, when God renovates the earth by fire, the water's going to be connected with that. And the Bible talks about things being in reserve, in store for God's coming judgment. So I'm sure it's got something connected with that. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
Now, this is a reference, again, to Genesis 1, 6, 7, and 8 of God dividing those waters. We've talked about it many, many times. God shedding their bounds. Verse 9, when he comes down here, says, For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood still. And what he's talking about in the context is the water. It says, When he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandments, when he appointed the foundations of the earth. This is God looking up there in that second heaven, seeing that deep, that great, vast bottle of water that make the Atlantic and the Pacific and all the oceans on a planet look like a mud puddle. When he says, okay, boys, that's all the farther you go. And most people don't know why you got to have water up there. But the reason why you got to have water up there, because that water, if you didn't have that great deep up there, that great expanse of water that he's talking about, you know we'd all be crispy critters and fried to death. You know the light of the glory of God permeates everything down through uh, the universe. <clears throat> so God, you ever been down down to see the Titanic? I mean, I know you didn't go down, but I mean, you ever see the videos of the Titanic when they're down through there? It's pitch black. They're five miles down. The sun is up here, and you can see 20 feet, 30 feet, 100 feet. You can see light. You get down 200, 300, 400, 500 feet, it's pitch black. You get down one mile, two mile, three mile, the water filters out the light. And right now, that deep is up there, filtering out the light of God's throne and the glory so we can have some kind of normal life. That's why at the end, when God recreates everything and sets down a new Jerusalem, that sees God. And when that sea's gone, you know what? The light and the glory of God permeates everything in this universe. Not ready yet. Not time yet. He's filtering it out. And here he's telling you when he's doing all this, he's saying, okay, I got my throne up here, the glory of God up here. Boy, that's bright. God is light. So I got to make sure these little guys down here don't get French fried. So I'm going to put a nose on layer, but that won't last very long because those women with the hairspray will eat that up. So here's what I'll do. I'll just put about 16 billion, trillion, billion, quadrillion, octillion, million miles of water up there. Amen. And they'll think that they're the most important thing down here and they're going to get in their little rocket ships and fly up there and go to the moon and send little probes to Mars and out there, beep, 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 send little pictures back. Oh, look how great we are. When he gave us... See his decree that the water should not pass his commandments. Now then he talks about the foundations of the earth. What's that all about? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. I don't fully understand it, but here again, we'll go to the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, where most of this stuff is. Job 38, then, answered, then, answer, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Well, let me just answer that question. Science does. Education does. It's words without knowledge. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, answer thou me. Where wast thou when I lay, here it comes, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Now, I just don't want to get away from this for a second, but you see the problem you got if you're an unsaved evolution or scientist and you wind up at the great white throne judgment? That's a question you're going to have to answer. You thought you were so smart. You thought you came from a monkey. You thought you evolved up through time. You thought you this, you know, you were a monkey in a banyan tree. Then you were a college professor with a PhD. You, you got all that stuff together, so you thought. And now you've got to stand before God, and he's going to ask you the questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation? Boy, you're going to have a tough time coming up with that answer. Amen. Now, if he asks me that, I'm just going to go to Job 38. Amen. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who hath laid the cornerstone thereof? Now, whatever those these foundations are, I, and I don't know how to put it all together, I'll be the first one to tell you, but I will guarantee you this. They will fit somehow into those seven foundational pillars I gave you a while back on Thursday night when we come through Proverbs chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8 says, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. Now, I, can't even, I can't even imagine God having a foundation for the earth. 
I can't imagine him fashioning it up there. But this whole thing is like, this whole universe, this whole second heaven is like a, a, something that God built, a structure. And he says, well, who hath laid the cornerstone thereof? Well, from uh, Matthew 21, 42, in the book of Ephesians 2, I know that Christ is the cornerstone. So he's saying whatever he's building out here, whatever this universe structure is, whatever his plan is and all that he's doing, Christ is the head chief cornerstone of it. And all this stuff is designed by God, put together by God, and the fact that you and I can't understand it, or NASA can't understand it, or a rocket scientist understand it, or Eric von Braun can't understand it, doesn't change a thing. God's doing it. I'll tell you. He talks about the fountains. Fountains of the deep. And that's a hard thing for me to grasp. But yet I put it in a context. Because this Bible's the deep. This Bible's God's mind. This Bible's the depth of God's mind. But you know there's fountains in here? You know what the fountains are? They're the individual verses that God gives you when you need. Like a cold drink of water. And if there's this Bible is the mind of God and the depth of God, and yet there's fountains in it of little verses that God lifts out and gives to you and gives to me and shows us things, a little something that we need or shows us how this thing works. Well, it figures the same way up there. But I don't get it all. Look at verse 30. Then I was by him as one brought up with him. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Now this is a reference to what you find that Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and Genesis 3, and then again in Genesis chapter 11. This is the Trinity talking amongst themselves. This is always a Bible question that I get at some point with young questions, and it's a great question. But in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God's speaking about the creation of man. You know what he says? He doesn't say, I'm going to make man in my image. You know what he says? He says, let's make God, let's us make man in our image. Who's the us? Him and Christ and the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 3.22, after man fell, the Trinity come back down and took a look at the situation again. And now they said, behold, a man has become one of us. Who's the us? Christ rejoicing always before him. In the Tyre of Babel, 11, uh, Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, it says, go to, let us go down and there and confound their language. Christ is with him. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, boy, this is a great one. He says, and he laid it upon my mouth, and he said, lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? See that thing? Then said I, here am I, send me. See, Christ is now by God's side through all of the rest of the Bible. Now, I want you to note, he's not seated yet at the right hand of the God the Father. You want to make that note? He's not seated yet because the work's not completed. He's not seated by the Heavenly Father until the crucifixion when the work is finished. On the cross, he says, it is finished. When he resurrected, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that he went up and ascended to heaven and he sat down on the right hand of God the Father. You know why? The work is finished. He's not sitting here. He's by his side here, but the work's not done yet. His son, one brought up with him, never a created God. Now, that, I, I got to stay here for a minute. That, that's a great verse and passage on, on talking about evangelism. God saw the need of man. Without hope, you and me, without Christ, without any chance whatsoever. And then God looked around in the Trinity and said, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And you know what Christ said? Christ said, Here am I, send me. Isn't that a great thing? But you know what the downside of that is today? Because we now have taken the place of Christ. We now are the begotten of God. He went back to heaven. We now are in Christ's stead. And the sad thing about that is, oh, you can hallelujah on the one side, but the downside of that is God today looks down at the earth and sees his creation in a fallen state and men and women lost in the dredges of sin and he reaches in our hearts to save people and he says the same thing, who will go for us? 
The call of God for man's sin was answered by God himself through Christ, God's Son. But the call of evangelism in the New Testament church needs to be answered by us. Who am I and who, who would I send? Who can go for us? And we should stand up and say, here we are, Lord, send me. But we don't. We don't. We don't. Look at verse 31. Rejoicing in the habitable parts of his earth. And my delights were with the son of men. And now here's where we get into the plan of God. We're pretty sure footing here. Up to this point, first part is a little, you know, to get the context and you know where you're at. Don't have all of the pertinent details, but you got enough to know what God's doing. The second phase where you get into the deep, that's pretty well established. Now here we're on, we're on solid ground, really good. And now here's where we get into the plan of God. You know, in the Bible, God has three distinct plans, and they're all connected together. First thing God has a plan for is the universe. He created the second heaven for a purpose. The second thing that God has a plan in the Bible is for the earth. Isaiah 45 says that the earth was created to be inhabited. God had a plan. Now, the earth is in the second heaven. The third plan that God has, which is distinct from the other two, but they're all connected, is God has a plan for you and he has a plan for me. You and I live on earth. God has a plan for you on this earth. He has a plan for the earth, and the earth is in the second heaven. They're all tied together. God has something he wants you and I to do. Now, we have the fellowship of God with man here, the habitable part of the earth. Now, if you've been around here for any length of time, and I know some of you are fairly new, but you'll, you'll pick it up. There's always ways we can get you to get it. But if you've been around here for any length of time and you've taken advantage of the teaching, the specialized stuff that we do, uh, you now know that the Bible has a plan, or the Bible is a plan of God coming to man through the two identities in the Bible uh, and the history of man. Uh, the Old Testament, God came through the nation of Israel. That was God's plan. You couldn't get to God any other way in the Old Testament. You had to come through the nation of Israel. Everything that God did, he put in Israel as a nation. And if you were a Gentile back in the Old Testament, you had to find God through the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, it's the church. And if you want to find Christ today, you have to find Christ through the church. I don't mean necessarily a building. I'm talking about the true church, which is the body of believers. That's the only way you can get salvation. It's in Christ's church. Now, you'll remember a while back, I, I told you how that Israel uh, in the Old Testament is basically laid out in four segments. And uh, it, it basically covers your Old Testament. You have what we call the formulation of the nation of Israel. This will be Genesis chapter 2 up to Gen Exodus chapter 12. Then you have the second one, which is the calling out of Israel. This will be Exodus chapter 12 when they come out of Egypt, all the way up to the book of Joshua right before they go into the land. Then you'll have the establishment of the nation of Israel. That's when they get in the land. That'll be Judges and up through Chronicles and Kings. And then you'll have the decline of the nation of Israel, and that'll be First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and all the prophets come in on that one. And during this time, God's rejoicing. During this time of Israel, when they get into the land, God is rejoicing and delighting himself with the sons of men, and the habitable part of his earth is Jerusalem. You have to understand that. It isn't independence where the morons, Mormons think it is. It isn't where all the cults believe it is. In the Old Testament, God's inhabitable part of the earth was Jerusalem. It is the most controversial holy place on planet earth. And it's absolutely, God established his literal kingdom of heaven with his people and built and had his fellowship with them in this city. And in the Old Testament, you cannot, you cannot take, you cannot take the city of Jerusalem and the Jews and make them separate. They're one. And he says, my delight was with the sons of men. And it took place in Jerusalem. David, David was the first king that they had after Saul that was God's choice. And you know what David did. 
David destroyed all the enemies of, of uh, the nation of Israel. He wiped out the last ones that were left over from Joshua. And then for the next 40 years, there's no wars in peace. And then Solomon builds the temple. And now their fellowship is complete. David made Jerusalem his, cap, his capital, I think, like 1 Samuel 2, 2, 5. And he brings the ark in there. And now he makes that his capital once he kicked the Philistines out. And now it's his capital. Solomon builds the temple. And now the temple, the tabernacle, New York, and all the holy things of God, they reside in Jerusalem. And God's habitation is there in Jerusalem with the Jews, the city of peace, in the temple. Now you go to Jerusalem today, and it's all changed. You see, the Muslims have the temple spot today called the Dome of the Rock. If you look at any picture of Jerusalem, you see that big golden dome? That's over the rock where they built the original temple. There's, no, there's nothing left of the original temple now. original temple has been gone. In fact, uh, you look Google it on, on, on Google or look it in a book someplace, they'll tell you that in history there's absolutely no record or no uh, evidence of anywhere that there ever was a, a Solomon temple. You know where they're going with that. Well, the only evidence of it is found in the Bible, they will tell you. That's good enough for me. Amen. Right now, the Muslims have the temple spot. Over there, there's what they call the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall was not the original temple. The Wailing Wall runs about 168 feet high and about 1,600 feet long. It's kind of built up against it. But it's, uh, it's where the Jews go and they pray. And it was prophesied in Jeremiah that they would go to the wall and pray there. And they're praying there. But that, that's Herod's temple that was built in Herod's time. And it's right to the northeast or to the uh, west, I guess, west side of the Temple Mount where the old temple was in Jerusalem. But that's all about the change. Because when the Lord comes back, that temple's going to get built right on that spot. Amen. But in the Old Testament, the thing that I want you to know is that that temple was where he, his habitat was. And when the Bible talks about he delighted with the, with the sons of men, that's where he did in Jerusalem. Now when we get into the New Testament, God's rejoicing and his habitat will be in the body of Christ, you and I. The church also goes through four segments. It goes through a formulation. That would be the early book of Acts. It goes through a calling out under Paul. It goes through an establishment uh, through mid-Acts, up through the seven period of church history. And it also goes through a demise in Laodicea. The true church, Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where in the Old Testament he dwelt in a literal temple, now he dwells in temples not made with hands, your body. 1 Corinthians 5.1 talks about that the, have a body made without hands, eternal in the heavens. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. We saw last week in 1 Peter 1.3 and 1 Corinthians 4.15 and Philippians 1.10, once we have been saved, now we are the sons of God. We're begotten through the gospel. Now we do for God what he started in Christ's stead. When Christ came at the first coming of Christ, he never finished what he did. He never moved outside the 40, 50 miles of, his, of where he was born. But now he tells you and I to go to the world. You've heard me say it many, many times, and it always bears repeating. One of the most profound concepts you'll ever grasp or ever not grasp. In the Old Testament, God's habitat, habitat and rejoicing was the sons of men in Jerusalem, in the literal temple. And you know from your Bible that that was a fixed spot on this earth and all of the world had to come to that temple. You didn't put the temple on an 18-wheeler and drive it to here or drive it to there. No, 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 no. It wasn't that at all. It wasn't like taking Lady Fatima and putting her on a harsh court and running her down from North Korea to South Korea so everybody could worship. Uh-uh. If you wanted to find God and you see examples with the Queen of Sheba and the King of Ophir, all of those guys, they're making pilgrimages, coming to Jerusalem to the temple because that temple is a fixed spot and all the world has to come to Jerusalem where God's habitat is and where he rejoices his men to find God. But in the New Testament, God now inhabits and dwells in you and me. And where in the Old Testament, everybody went to the temple. Now in the New Testament, we're to take our temple to everybody in the world. It's just that simple. He now sends us to the world. The difference is, 
Some of us won't go. Who will go for us? Not me. Could you imagine up in heaven when that question was asked? When God says, look down there at all those lost people. Look at Bob Alexander. Look at Zach. Look at Jenny. Look at this person. Look at that person. Look at all these people down here. Who will go for us? Not a word. That's not the way it was up in heaven, was it? Because Jesus, who was God, knew the whole plan of God and the purpose of God. And he stepped up and said, here am I, send me. But you know the purpose of God too, and so do I. But yet God puts that call in our lives and we're just mum. We ain't going nowhere. Imagine, imagine a son of God, a child of God, saying no to the call of God. Now look at the last part of verse 31. And my delights were with the sons of men. When, when God's plan is completely laid out, and I, we know, I know we didn't do a very good job of it today, but enough to give you an understanding of it. When God's plan is completely laid out and when God has finished that plan, then this is a practical application for you and me. When it's all fulfilled, when every prophecy is done and all, everything is said and done, at the center in the heart of all God has done, from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22, is simply going to be fundamentally God's wanting to have fellowship with you and me. Forget about everything else. Forget about who made the touchdown last night and then pointed toward God. It wasn't important. Forget it when somebody makes a great play and bows down and gives God the credit at the goalpost. It ain't about that. God's whole plan from a practical application for me and for you and everything that he did, everything that he did, putting all of the other things aside, at the end of the day, God did it fundamentally in a practical way for one thing. He wants to have the rejoicing and the fellowship with you and me. That's it. It'll be God's fellowship with you and me. In God's mind, that's all that matters. And, of course, I've taught you the book of Song of Solomon four or five New Year's ago, and it's back there in book, and it lays it out completely. He wants to rejoice and delight himself with us as his son, just as he did with his only begotten son. There is no difference in his mind. I want, in closing here, I want to compare two verses. I saw this as I was coming through it, and I thought, man, that's pretty amazing. First one's going to be verse 30. He says, Then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Now that's Christ right there. That's Christ saying, I was, was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. There you have God's delight in his son, and his son rejoicing always before his father. Then look at verse 31. Rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth, and my delight for with the son of men. You see that? You see the difference between the two? Because verse 31 is you and me. See the difference between me and Christ? You see, God wants to rejoice and delight himself in the fellowship of his word with me. In verse 30, Christ returned that love, so it says that Christ was daily his delight and rejoiced always before him. But it doesn't say that in verse 31, talking about me and you. It says that God's delight is with, with the sons of men, but it doesn't say that our delight is always with him and that we are rejoicing always before him. You know why? Because most of the time, we simply don't do it. That's why. Some of us, unfortunately, we have many times too many other things that get in the way. Too many other delights that take our fellowship away. Too many other things that we're willing to rejoice over instead of what God has done for us. Loving and rejoicing and giving to God based on the biblical love that's generated by understanding what he's given to us. Somebody asked a question the other night, I think it was Delano on Thursday night about back there in the Bible about strange fire. And I explained how that God killed uh, the two sons of Moses or Levi for giving strange fire. 
And the strange fire had to do with the fact that uh, uh, they were supposed to use the fire off the brazen altar to light everything in the tabernacle, and they were so indifferent to the things of God, they got the fire someplace else, one of the little cigarette lighters probably, and God killed them. That's exactly what we're talking about here. God desires to have delight with you and to delight with the sons of men, but we have a desire to rejoice in him always. Hey, I've seen people, Christians, claim to be Christians all my life, love him right up to the point where they get a better deal. I ain't kidding you. Your tenure with God may go six months, a year, two years, three or four years, simply till something else better comes along. Trading the gold, silver, and precious stones simply for the wood, hay, and stubble. But that's where we're at. Those two verses are profound. It says that Christ was always rejoicing before him. God wanted to be his delight and was. And he wants to be your delight and my delight. But it doesn't say we're always rejoicing before him. Because sadly, we always don't do it. Some of God's people never do it. Some people, God's people, go through their whole life and never thank God one time for all that he's done. They never stop and consider one time all that they go through in life, how God could have just, you know, put them anywhere in this world. It could go through some terrible things. I remember a couple of weeks ago laying about, hearing about all that was going on over there in Iraq and Iran with ISIS and all of that crowd over there. And I, I, and I yet, at the same time, this has been about a month ago, at the same time, there, I was talking with some Christians who weren't part of our church, and, and they were whining and complaining about this and that and what they didn't like about this and they didn't like about that. And I'm thinking to myself, you are absolutely the most pettiest people on this planet. You're whining and complaining about what you don't have or what you didn't have or something didn't go your way. When tonight, as we sit here and speak, over in Iraq and Iran, there were mothers who had their children's heads cut off today. Now, that's a real problem. We get so caught up in the stupid stuff. But you can see the depth of this passage and how you have it, and now you have it outlined for you in segments that will give you an idea of what's going on here and yet give you a lot of context to things. But know this, we have only scratched the surface of this deep well of truth. But put it in your Bible formulate it down like I had to do it where you got it and get it in, make it make sense, condense it down, get it in so when you're reading it down the line someplace or somebody's asking you a question, you have the key things in there. As you grow over the next 20 or 30 years or 10 years, you'll add to it and come to understand it better. I'll use myself for an example. I did this probably 30 years ago. I probably have taught it 100 times. But going through it this last week, I got a key that I had never seen before. It was laying right there in front of me. I had never seen it in 30 years and 100 times going through it. I had never seen it. And when I saw it, it changed and it made me reshape my whole thinking on Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 1, verse 2. One little phrase, one little verse. Now, that's what the Bible does. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It's a living book. I've told you before, way back when, and I was in Ohio a couple of weeks ago, and I would drive by, every, when I'm going places, I drive by the places we used to street preach when I, when I didn't know what I was doing, you know. And we used to do some stupid stuff. But it was, uh, I, you know, I go up there in North Canton, right across the street, there's a little square still painted on the sidewalk where we used to stand and we used to preach when they were coming out of Mass. Wasn't a good deal to do. Glory to God. And we were down, I, I drove downtown Canton, and there was the square right by the courthouse. Not much of a courthouse in Canton, but it's where we used to preach. And I remember a time that one of our guys, and he was a crazy guy, and he could, we'd always try to get a crowd. And so one time he took, a, he took a big Mexican sombrero out there. I mean, one of those big ones, you know, that Pancho Villa wears or whatever that thing. And he put it right on the ground, and he, he, he was going to preach. And so he's, he's, people are walking by, and he's saying, ma'am, stuck out, it's alive under that hat. You want to stay away from it. And people are looking around there, and he says, it's alive, it's alive. Stay back, man, it's alive, it's alive. He must have had 30, 40 people up there. And he says, it's alive. Everybody stay around. Finally, a cop comes up, and he says, what's going on here? He says, sir, officer, stand back, it's alive. And he says, what's alive, what's alive, what's alive? He's going to shoot it. There's a rattlesnake under there. He picks it up, and he says, there's a Bible, and he says, the Word of God. Then he Amen. preached to him. Okay? That book's alive. 
The key about that Bible that most people never get is why you want to keep on reading it and keep on studying it for the next hundred years of your life is because as you grow, it will keep revealing itself to you, new truth, new concepts that God reveals because that's what the book does. The more you invest yourself in the book, the more it invests itself in you. And he'll reveal to you on an ongoing revelation the truth of that book that's down in the depths. That's why I'm saying, get it in there now. Put it in there now, and down the line as you grow, if you grow, when you grow, it'll come to the point where it'll keep revealing itself, just like with me. 30 years ago, 100 times through it, and it took last week for God to reshape my thinking on one concept, which affects just about every other thing I've ever thought of. That's what the book does. That's what it does. It's eternal. It keeps revealing truth to us as we grow and unfolding itself to us on a regular daily basis throughout the years. I think Paul said it best, and I close with this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints, is the grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. They're unsearchable, folks. It's an infinite book given unto finite people. It's a book that's holy and eternal and the very words of God given to us who don't deserve it. And it takes the Holy Spirit of God and a contrite heart to get out of it. But when you do and when you sell your whole soul to it and you invest your life in it, God will reveal to you the very truths on an ongoing basis. And that's why the Word of God is the number one thing in our church that we teach, we stand on, we preach on, we make no apologies for it, and we hold the Word of God up as what it is the absolute infallible truth of the Word of God by the living God to you and to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you and praise you for all you do for us. Thank you for today and this great passage. And may it now make a little bit more sense to them if they can have a, a foothold here to grow and grasp the great truths. We love you. Pray, Father, throughout the day as you'll continue the blessings and throughout this next week. And pray for our little high school kids, Lord, as we put together this great evangelism movement that's going to put them right in the center of everything that they do and let them have their own, uh, grow to their own ministry and be part of that. I just pray, Father, that in everything that you do, you'll get the honor and glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, as shake we ask it, amen.